if you want to open your personal Bible or the Bible sitting in front of you in the pew to 2 Corinthians 10. This morning we're going to begin a new series as we work through chapter 10 uh, that we've called Spiritual Authority. We're going to look at power, we're going to look at authority, and we're going to look at influence. But <coughs> we're also transitioning in the book of 2 Corinthians to a new and major section of the book. Um, and it's worth, it's worth highlighting what that section is about. Um, <coughs> for the rest of the book, effectively, Paul is laying out a defense of his ministry uh, and dealing with the criticisms of an unknown group of people influencing the church in Corinth. In fact, since we're going to talk about power this morning, what's happening in Corinth is effectively a power struggle. There's, there's a fight going on. These new folks, whoever they are, have come in and they're trying to <coughs> wean the church away from the influence, the power, and authority of Paul um, and put themselves instead in that position, in that posture. Um, as you read through chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, you get acquainted, if you pay attention, with the characteristics of these critics as well as the criticisms that they present. They say things like, Paul's really not that impressive. They say he does all his heavy lifting from a distance because he doesn't have any real authority. They say he clearly doesn't love you because he wouldn't take your money. They say uh, he's not really an apostle of Christ. He's maybe not even a Christian. They challenge him on every level. And what's striking is the way that Paul responds. Because instead of responding, fighting fire with fire, taking what, what uh, uh, public speakers call an ad hominem attack, right? They don't attack Paul's positions. They don't attack his beliefs. They attack his person. Instead of responding in the same way, he actually says, the story's a lot worse than that. You want to talk about my weakness? Fine, I will boast in my weakness. And he lays out all of the things that his opponents are convinced will turn the Corinthians away from him. He, he says, you don't even know half the story. Let's lay the whole thing out. You're embarrassed by me? Let's expand that, right? It's like, it's like when you were a child and your father realizes that what he's currently doing is embarrassing you and so he just lays another log on the fire right in public. It's similar to that. But underneath that, it begins, to, uh, it begins to display how differently Christians are forced to think about these concepts, power, influence, authority. Okay. Now, I want to say right up front that there's a tendency to think, <coughs> even as Christians, that the proper way to respond to power, influence, and authority is just to reject them to see them as evil things that need to be removed. So, for example, take the saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Is power the problem? But that's, that's how the saying comes off, isn't it? We currently exist in a culture that is anti-authority. We exist in a culture that is anti-power. And so much of the identity politics of our world, even uh, intersexualism, intersect, wow, that's a hard word, uh, intersectionalism, there we go, um, the idea is basically, okay, there are the oppressed and there's the victim and we need to align ourselves and we can't understand things until we, we start with weakness. Uh, and so there's concerns about these things. And the truth is, we also live in a culture that's anti-influence. And so sometimes you will even find schools of thought that say parents shouldn't influence their children. Children should be free to come to their own conclusions, lead in their own way. We really want people to think independently. We want free minds. And so we want to be free from the influence of others, right? The truth is, though, what we are complaining about, what we are criticizing, what we're concerned about is not power, but oppression. Not authority, but coercion. And not influence, but control. Okay. 
And as Christians, we need to be able to parse those things. Paul here, when he talks about power, doesn't say we should neglect power. He says you misunderstand power. He presents a different way, not a denial of power, authority, and influence. And I think that's really important. Let me point something out to you politically. Okay? We are a democratic society, and we should probably stand with Churchill that dem democracy is the least unjust form of government. Right? It's, it's the one with all the eyeballs. It's the one with all the checks and balances, and that's good. But don't ever forget that the final kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. Jesus will rule with full authority. And that's good. Why? Because Jesus will rule with perfect authority, untainted by corruption, unhampered by injustice, unlimited by oppression. And so, so we need to keep that in mind. And the question to ask then is, okay, how then should Christians view and handle authority, influence, and power? And the simple answer is differently. Differently. Read with me, please, the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let's pray. God, as we look at power this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to the fact that we need power, that there are things in our life, things that stand against us, uh, deep roots of sin in our own hearts, um, things we see in society that are devastating and destroying what Paul here calls strongholds. And so there is a war to fight. There is a battle to wage. And the victory depends on power. But I pray as well, Lord, that you would help us to understand uh, how this power works and how it is to be wielded and what it's for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remember here, <coughs> Paul is making a defense. He's responding to criticism. Also remember that Paul is an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ, one, so he has that authority. Second, he has a significant relationship with the church in Corinth that his opponents don't have. Not only are they not apostles, but also he started the church. He says earlier in the letter, look, you will have lots of teachers, but you only have one spiritual father. In fact, he will say later in this chapter, if anyone denies our Christianity, you of all people should be the best representatives against that own case because we gave you of our belief. You took what we believed and responded to it. Your branch is rooted in our tree of Christianity, and so don't saw off the branch you're sitting on. But I want you to notice where he starts here. In a sense, he's holding all the cards. But notice the first few words, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. Your translation might even say, I beg you. I'm, I'm going to be frank. Paul has the authority to command. In fact, he makes very clear here, he hopes it doesn't come down to that. But if it has to come down to that, he's willing to utilize his authority. But he begins <coughs> by asking, by even begging. The word is pretty strong here. He's, he wants to persuade them. Now, don't misread this. When he says, I, Paul, myself... You could read that very simply as being a reference to his authority. Paul of all people. The great Paul, right? 
But most likely, the reason he's engaging his own name here is because of its meaning. You see, Paul's birth name wasn't Paul. It was Saul. Saul's a good Hebrew name, like King Saul. But as he traveled around the world as a missionary for Jesus Christ, he began to use a new name. And we don't know if he selected this name or this was just his Greek version of his Hebrew name. Okay? We see some of that in the New Testament. But what Paul means is little. That's significantly different than the heritage of Saul. Okay? And so he refers to himself here and he says, I, the little one, beg you. Like I said, he doesn't respond to the criticism by countering or even by removing it. He responds from that place. It clearly, what you see here is humility. He starts in a place of humility. But notice what he says next. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This is where we get a, get a look under the hood and we start to understand Paul's method as it flows through all of these chapters. Paul's understanding of power, authority, and influence has shifted because of Jesus Christ. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 11, Daniel has this vision of the ancient of days in the throne room of heaven. And he sees one like a son of man. And the ancient of days gives that son of man all authority and power to rule eternally. That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus. But when we read the Gospels and we watch how Jesus wields that authority, what he does with that power, we find something significantly different. Listen <coughs> to the words of the book of Philippians. Paul, writing again to a church in Philippi, says, Has th Have this mind in your, uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or literally a thing to be held onto. Although he had the prerogatives and the rights of being God himself, he didn't hold on to those, but, it says, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human, human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. We can't understand the life of Jesus Christ without understanding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That is really the center point of the life. It's the it's the thing that Jesus is constantly pointing to as saying, this is the reason why I've come. I've come to die. But when we look at it, for an all-powerful authority figure, it's a bit of a head-scratcher, if not embarrassing. Here's Jesus who allows himself to be degraded, allows himself to experience injustice, allows himself to take a beating, to be mocked, allows himself, uh, as Isaiah says, like a sheep that is led to the slaughter, he opens not his mouth. There's an occasion, a clash of power structures, if you will, when Jesus is being arrested and Peter pulls a sword, right? How is this going to go down? And Peter goes, it's going to go down by the blade. I will defend you, Jesus, at the risk of my own life. And Jesus stops him. He does a little bit of cleanup. And he says, Peter, don't you think I have at my command legions of angels? Do I really need you to swing a sword? So it's all there. It is beck and call. But when you look at the cross, you cannot help but see weakness. Now, if you're a Christian, you understand that that weakness is also power. That that surrender in the crucifixion is also victory. In fact, Paul puts it in Colossians this way. He says that he triumphed over powers and principalities, making a public spectacle, spectacle of them as he died on the cross. So you have the reality, and then you have appearances. Paul says here 
that the way that he operates in his own authority, in his own power, is through that lens of Jesus Christ. He tries to remind them of how much that changes the game. We'll talk more about authority next week, but here's a good example of this transition. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, you know that authorities among the nations lord it over one another, but not so among you. What's the difference between the nations and the people he's talking to? Not so among my followers. He says, rather with you, he who desires to be greatest must be the least and the servant of all. He says, because of who I am, it changes who you are. I'll give you another example. In John chapter 13, the last supper that Jesus shares with his disciples, it says, Jesus, knowing where he came from and where he was going, stood up, wrapped himself in a towel, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, that intro is profound. When we talk about the four Gospels, each of them brings a different perspective, has a different agenda of what they're trying to present. They're not in competition, but they're writing to local churches to make particular points. And so the one that emphasizes the humanity of Jesus the most is Luke. The one that emphasizes the servant nature of Jesus the most is Mark. And if there's a Gospel that emphasizes his divinity... It's the Gospel of John. And yet John is the only one who tells us about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But you have to remember how he introduces that passage. Let me tell you again. Knowing where he was from and where he was going. Knowing that he was God incarnate. John's Gospel tells us that in chapter 1. Knowing that he was headed to the cross, to the resurrection, to the exaltation, to the name above all names. He wrapped himself in a towel and washed the disciples' feet. That story is more profound in John's gospel because it's in light of who Jesus is in his full divinity, in his full authority. He wraps himself in a towel, he washes the disciples' feet, and then how does he explain that action? Just as I, your master, have done for you, so also you should do for one another. He takes the paradigm of how we see power, privilege, authority, and he alters it. Paul gets that. And here he's subtly trying to wake up the uh, <coughs> Corinthians to understand it too. And he says, I'm begging you this way, I'm imploring you this way because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus did, because of the way that Jesus personified power, which is specifically here with meekness and gentleness. Now, if we just take those words in the English, they definitely apply to Jesus and they carry a lot of weight. But here's the thing, the, at least in the ESV here, the translation that I'm reading, the word here used for meekness is not the one that's translated meek in the rest of the New Testament. You know, like, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That's not this word. Actually, the way that this word is primarily translated throughout the ESV is gentleness. And the word gentleness is generally, generally translated as patience or forbearance. It's really only used in two places. Uh, but the other cognates of it are, are of patience and forbear forbearance. So the emphasis here is actually this. Okay, Most likely these two words belong together. If I say I'll come out there when I'm good and ready, I'm not waiting to be good and ready. It's one idea, right? In Greek, we have this, I, this running throughout the New Testament. It's a common way of speaking. Or, uh, I, <coughs> um, So the point is here that these words go together. But what is he saying? When he says here meekness and gentleness, the idea is of gentle forbearance. Here's the point. Jesus' power and his authority is restrained by his patience and his compassion. And this is an important point to make. You can't just say Jesus is only self-sacrifice and that his power is only death and weakness and that's what makes it so great. That's only half of the story. There are two different places where we see Jesus kind of riding into the scene. The first is in the Gospels, right? On the... Um, on the triumphal entry day, when he enters in Jerusalem, the last week of his life, his Passion Week, 
And fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah, he comes in on a donkey. Why a donkey? Is it only to fulfill the prophecy? Sure. But could the prophecy have said, you know, something awesome like a, an eagle? Uh, or could it have said a horse? Sure. But what's the significance of a donkey? When royalty would travel in the ancient world and they were traveling on a mission of peace or diplomacy, they came on a donkey, not a war horse. But when you read the book of Revelation and it portrays the return of Jesus Christ, something that he constantly pointed to and promised, even as he left his disciples and ascended into heaven, the angels go, what are you looking at? Just as he left, so also he will return. When we look in Revelation, we don't find him riding on a donkey, but on a war horse. That's what this passage means when it says, by the gentle forbearance of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is so patient that Peter recognizes that some people will use it as an excuse to prove that there's no such thing as judgment. That Christianity is clearly false. That they'll say, Look, the church has been saying that the judgment is coming and that Jesus will return for thousands of years. And he goes, don't mistake the long-suffering and forbearance of God that is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why don't we always get what we deserve? Because God is patient. But notice how different that is than the way we often think of power. Think of how many times in television you've seen somebody who's slighted or their authority wobbles or something like that. And what is the counsel given? You need to nip this in the bud. You need to show your hand. You need to remind them of who you are and make an example out of them, right? Jesus doesn't have a dog in that race. He holds his power, but it's restrained. His heart is for the people and not for his own reputation. That's what the passage in Philippians means. Here he is, the very glory of God himself, and he takes on human flesh. He takes on the role of a servant. He becomes obedient even to the point of death. Why? For us. When Jesus says that those who are greatest in the kingdom of God must be servants, he's not giving them advice he doesn't follow. Here's how he puts it in Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul says here, they wonder why I haven't brought my authority to bear. He says, that's because I'm following Jesus. My desire is not to shatter the church, to destroy, to tear apart. Even with whoever these people are, Paul's heart for them is salvation and not condemnation, not damnation, not destruction. Most likely, most scholars believe that these critics were what we sometimes call the Judaizers. We find throughout Paul's ministry these men who were Jews who believed in Jesus but said, okay, if you're going to be a Christian, that's great, but if you're a Gentile, you also need to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. They're so present in Paul's ministry, most likely that's where these critics come from. But remember what Paul says about the nation of Israel, his compatriots, the ones who chase him, the ones who criticize him, sometimes the ones who arrest him, try to stone him to death, etc. He says, my heart for them is that they would be saved, and I wish I could be damned in their place. That's what he says in the book of Romans. That doesn't remove the fact that sometimes we see really striking elements of authority and judgment by the apostles in the book of Acts. False prophets struck blind. Ananias and Sapphira struck dead. When I was a kid and I took karate, they taught us when we bowed to bow with our fist in our hand. And it was explained to me that the idea of this was restrained power. Right? And if you've seen The Karate Kid, the emphasis is always only fight when fighting is the only way to not fight. Right? It's to stop fighting that you fight. But even this word meekness, and like I said, that's not the word that's used here, although it is a related word. It's power under restraint. 
Meekness is not necessarily the same thing as weakness. In fact, here is the true weakness of power as we often experience it in our lives. It has no self-control. Right? It's so weak it can't even control itself. It's not something that we use. It's something that uses us. It's something that drives us. Now, I cannot read through this passage without thinking of the Netflix show House of Cards, which I've only seen some of. But it's clearly a show about power. And there's an occasion where Frank Underwood, the main character, is in a Catholic church and he's being effectively rebuked by this priest or by this pastor. And he's trying to remind him of his place. He, he basically says, God has given you this place to do his work, not your work, to serve people and not serve yourself. And then he gets so frustrated and he says, this, this judgmental God, he, he takes this, this supposed God of the Old Testament who brings about his power and demonstrates his wrath. He says, that I understand, but I've never understood Jesus. And the rebuke goes on for a while, and he asks if the, the priest would leave him alone so he can pray. And he walks up to this crucifix with Jesus on it, and he says something like, so love is what you're selling. Well, I'm not buying. And then he spits in Jesus' face. But what Frank Underwood doesn't understand and what we often neglect is that when we make things ultimate in our lives, we become their servants. We become their slaves. And if you worship power, you'll never be strong enough. You'll always be afraid of someone stronger. You'll always feel inherently your own weakness. And you will be driven by that power to your own destruction. But there's no place for power like that in the kingdom of God. And so he says here that he's meek and gentle. And then notice what he says next at the end of verse 1. I who am humble, but when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Now there he's alluding to the criticism. Look at verse 10. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Do you see that? That's the criticism. He writes really powerfully from a distance. His bark, if you will, is worse than his bite. But in presence, he's nothing to be afraid of. And so they say here, back in verse 1, look, he's, he's so humble and weak. And the word there for humble is not the good word for humble. It's not the virtue. It means of low position, of no account. They wipe him away as, as not really having any authority, but bold towards you when I'm away. Do you see how those two things fit together? He's not denying that his letters are strongly worded, but his presence was, was different. He's saying there's an intention there. In fact, notice how he goes on, verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He says, why am I begging now? So I won't have to be bold later. He says, the reason I wrote you a letter, the reason I took this posture is because I desire for you to turn around. I desire for you to repent. Consider the, uh, the nation of Israel and their history. The very first prophet who says that Israel is on a path leading to their own destruction, that if they do not turn around and keep the covenant of God, if they do not stop worshiping idols, is hundreds and hundreds of years before it's fulfilled. And he constantly sends another prophet and another prophet and another prophet. He's patient. Paul operates in that same patience. Once again, why? We're going to see this throughout, but it's because Paul's power is not self-interested. This is not about being put on a pedestal it's not about everybody giving Paul what he's due. He's willing to sacrifice everything he's due if it'll accomplish his heart, which is for them. Nothing shows where your interest is more than when people treat you like you don't deserve. 
Nothing shows if you really serve people until they treat you like a servant. And Paul's heart is clean here. His agenda is right. Now, notice the criticism that they make there. They suspect us of walking according to the flesh. The idea here of according to the flesh is that's the metric. In other words, he's saying they suspect us of being just another person and operating in just the same ways. (laughs) What he's saying, and it's a little bit veiled, is they think we're going to be just as underhanded as they are. They think we're going to be just as conniving as they are. All of these criticisms that these opponents make of Paul actually show that their standards of what life should be like, right? What are they saying here? If Paul was really powerful, if he had any authority, he'd use it now. Because that's how they operated. With fear and coercion and manipulation. You see, there are all sorts of types of different power. There's the power of the sword, right, that says change or die. There's the power of manipulation, which is controlling and subtle and takes advantage of what's hidden and ignorance, but it rules over people's lives. That's how these men operated. If you, and I give you this homework, read chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, and just pay attention to who these guys are. They're not just competitive with Paul. He's going to say later they're competitive with one another. They compare themselves to one another. Competition is another form of power, right? It says, why would you put up with him when I'm so much greater? But he says, you're using the wrong measurement. And this is so important for us as Christians, not just because all of us in one area or another have some level of power, right? You have places, positions in work, positions in government maybe, positions in family. There's lots of places where power plays out. That's why we can't just ignore it and pretend it's not there. Because all that does, same with authority, is push it into the shadows. It's better, like with democracy, to keep it visible, to own up to it, and keep it accountable. But when it comes to power for us, we have to use a different metric than the one according to the flesh. And that's the next thing Paul gives us. He says, okay, how does power function? What's true power in the Christian life? He says in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh. Now, I want to stop right there because I think that's tremendously important. That's different than he said, according to the flesh. Walk in the flesh. All he's saying here, for though we are human, and the lives we experience, experience human stuff, okay? Don't ever think that the powerful politician you see or the incredibly wealthy you see or the celebrity are immune from the realities of human weakness. They're touched by all the same things we are internally in their own abilities and externally in their circumstances. Wealth cannot protect you from all sorts of things. But notice what Paul's saying here. He says, effectively, the secret of Christian power is not in us at all. He says, I'm merely human. And that's the problem with his opponents, and it's the problem with most people's wrong view of power, is they see it as something they have. Now, this is especially true of pastors in ministry, but it's true of every role. Going back to the book of Daniel. <coughs> in fact, let's, let's take a look at this. Um, Turn with me to the book of Daniel. Look with me at chapter 4. Now here we're talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. And a little bit earlier in the book, a little bit earlier in the book, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that Daniel interprets, and it's of a statue. It's gold at the top, and then silver, and then bronze, and then the feet are clay and iron mixed. And it's interesting what Daniel tells him. He says, you, O king, are the golden head. You're here. You're valuable. God has a purpose in your life. 
God's placed you here. But here in chapter 4, notice what happens in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And then he goes through this insane judgment where he basically loses his mind and runs out of the palace and lives among the fields eating grass. But what does he do? He looks out there and he goes, I built this. It's my talents, my energy, my ability. That's always untrue. It's always wrong. And notice he also says, I built it for my glory. This whole thing's about me. See, here's, here's the thing. Notice the rest back in the second Corinthians of what Paul says in this verse three. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war. In fact, this one little metaphor of battle is like a flame that catches fire and runs through the rest of our passage. Listen to the military uh, illustrations he goes on here. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This idea that the Christian life is a war runs all the way through the New Testament. It's a consistent image. Warren Wearsby, a pastor uh, in the last generation, put it this way. He said, the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. This is why this conversation about power matters. Power for us is not irrelevant. When Paul looks at life, he's not critiquing these men because they have power, but because they don't rightly wield it. He says there's a battle going on. There's real strongholds, which if you're not familiar with the idea of a stronghold, it's a fortress, okay? You can't take uh, in war, you can't take a land or take back a land and leave the stronghold standing, right? That's where all the strength is. That's where the battalions are. That's the thing that is the power source for everything else. And Paul looks around, he looks in his life, he looks in the church in Corinth, he looks at the world at large, and he says there's a war going on and there's plenty of strongholds. But notice once again what he says, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Now, notice the admission that he's making here. It's possible to fight the right war with the wrong weapons. It's possible to seek the right goal with the wrong method. It's possible to try and do the work of God in the ways of men. That's effectively what he says here. But Paul says, that's not my way. Now, when we talk about these other ways of power, like coercion, threatening, we need to recognize two things. One... They don't align with the character of God. They don't look like Jesus, so they're out of bounds for us. Manipulation is the same thing. Jesus didn't come offering a pyramid scheme or tricking people into follow him. Think of how often he's up front and goes, you should really count the cost before you become a Christian. He's honest. But it's more than it just that it's out of character. It also doesn't work. Imagine you're a parent. You want to change the behavior of your child. Threats and punishments will accomplish certain things. It'll probably protect your reputation because they'll be less likely to act out. It may protect your comfort because they won't disturb the quiet peace of your home, but it will not uproot strongholds. This is true of government at the larger level, too. We need government. The Bible is pro-government. It sees government as a God-given institution to help with this reality that we call sin nature. But 
legislation will not eradicate racism. That doesn't mean it's unimportant. Martin Luther King said, laws can't change hearts, but they can restrain the heartless. And we need that restraint of government, but it's not going to destroy the stronghold. Manipulation can get your way, but it won't deal with the root of the problem. So much of how we deal with the things in our own life that we're ashamed of or that we're fighting against has nothing to do with these weapons that Paul's talking about. They're just man-made methods. They take our strongholds and they paint them like fairy tale castles and pretend they're not there. They take our strongholds and they place the blame somewhere else and they ignore them. They take our strongholds and they uproot them of all of the evil and just replace it with another one. Self-righteousness, for example. Listen to what he says. He says, the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, I want you to think about this warfare we're talking about this morning on three different levels. Paul is talking about uh, a particular circumstance where this stronghold is not outside the church, is it? It's inside. But we could also apply it to inside our own lives. And then we can also apply it to outside the church in the world at large. This, this is a comprehensive battle. There's a lot of different fronts, and we need to keep that in mind. But what he's talking about here is divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, <laughs> this combination here, he doesn't really tell us what the weapons are. He says what they're not. They're not the methods of men. They're not coercion and manipulation. They're not threats and punishments. But he doesn't tell us what they are. Now, like I said, the me me military metaphors are common in Scripture. So if you turn over to Ephesians 6, he's going to talk about warfare again, and he's going to say, therefore, you need to put on the whole armor of God. And he's going to list it. We could look there. Instead of doing that, though, and instead of just telling you what the weapons are, I want to show you that there's a thread that runs all the way through 2 Corinthians that shows us at least some of the things that's in Paul's mind. What are the features of this passage? Weakness and power. Now, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and notice how similar this passage is. Verse 1 says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, uh, the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See that idea of servants and power again? Verse 6, for God who said, let light sh shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then notice verse 7, but we have this treasure. What treasure? this light of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. He goes on. This passage, he's walking around the same issue and he's doing it in the same way. And so here we can fill in, what are the weapons of warfare? Here's how I would put it. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the word of God as empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. That's what he says here. He says, we preach Jesus and not ourselves. He says, we bring not lies and fables and cunningly cunning deceptions, but the truth of God's word. And he says, and we bring it in weakness. We bring it in the flesh. We bring it in humanity. So here's the weapons. One of them, very clearly, is prayer. And we need to understand what prayer is. Prayer is, at its heart, an expression of dependence. 
when we ask God for help, what we're saying is, I can't, I need you to help. And prayer is one of these weapons. Proverbs says this, that the king's heart, a leader's heart, a powerful figure's heart, is in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it like rivers of water. That God, who has that type of control, we have access to in Jesus Christ. That's what prayer is. But the emphasis Paul makes here, although uh, prayer is included, is definitely on the truth. Definitely on the word of God. Definitely on the gospel. Because notice what he says in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Arguments, opinions, knowledge, thoughts. Do you see that? Where is this battle raging? Ideologically. Why do you have strongholds in your life? It's because you think particular things. It's because you believe particular lies. It's because you've accepted particular cultural scripts. Your action flows out of your heart, Jesus says. And don't forget that the heart in Hebrew mindset is not like Valentine's Day, just the place of emotion. The heart is the place of your will. It's the place of your intellect. It's your inner being. That's where the war wages. It's an ideological war of truth versus lies. Now, this is so profound because what Paul is effectively saying here is where coercion fails, where, um, you know, external authority fails, where behavior modification fails, where changing your circumstances fails, God's word will succeed. Now, obviously, we could talk extensively about how this changes the way we think about church. Because the truth is, all of these power structures around us, take wealth, for example, there's a tendency to think, if we had more money. There's a tendency to think, if we had more position, more influence, if more people were looking, right? Not here. The contrast that Paul lays out here is a lot like the contrast between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They've got spectacle, they've got numbers, they've got power, they've got influence. And Elijah just says one quiet prayer. I'm not saying this morning that we cannot use things like technology, like money. I'm saying that we can't be dependent upon them. This is not so much, and this is where it will show your heart, this is not so much about what you can use or not use, it's what you can't go without. And for Paul here, what tears down strongholds, what is the very power of God, has to do with ideas, has to do with the truth of God. Read it with me again. Verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And he does that by presenting the truth of Christ. He does that by presenting the gospel. He goes on, he says, uh, verse 6, uh, sorry, verse 5 still, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, sometimes... Christians are familiar with this verse in their own personal struggle with, with sin. I need to take every thought captive. The word here is actually much bigger than that. It's have to take every idea, ideology captive. It's a much broader word. Now that plays out in your personal life. But this is not just about, oh, I shouldn't think that way and then grabbing it. And it's, it's not something spiritual. It's actual combat where you go, that is a lie or that's based on a lie. My thinking right now says something about God. And that's true all the time. When you say, I need this or I won't be happy, what you're ultimately saying is something about God. You may be saying God is not sufficient. You may be saying God's not good because he won't give me this. You may be saying, I am God and I'm going to take what I want. But those are the roots of the fruit of your thought life. 
What it means here to take every thought captive is to connect the dots, not just to isolate, but to connect the dots between what it is you want and why you want it and who God is in Jesus Christ. For those of you who are fearful, you need to learn to listen to your fears. Not just to let them control you and run your life, but ask, what am I really afraid of? And then ask, who is God in light of my fears? For those of you who are angry, you need to listen to your anger. I think the best thing we can do to learn to counsel is pay attention to the places where God counsels. And when Jonah gets angry, what does God ask him? Is it right for you to be angry? What's going on under your anger? When you grasp tightly what little power you have because your kids are exploding in a public place, what is really bothering you? Is it that you're afraid that they're not maturing the way they should or are you embarrassed that people are watching? Those are very different things. And the thought changes the action. Why does Paul respond in this way where he's begging from a distance before he comes? Because he has his goal in mind. Because he's connected and taken his own thoughts captive. So it's not, how dare you harm my reputation? How dare you influence with my work, right? Uh, interfere with my work? How? That's not his attitude at all. His, the church is at risk. I've got to do something. What's the right way to go, right? Take every thought captive to obey Christ. The emphasis on obedience there is an important one, but you need to read Obey Christ as it's used in the New Testament as a summary for salvation. It, it's almost weird, isn't it? We're, we're talking here about freedom from strongholds, but it's leading into obedience of Christ, and that's not what some of us want. What we want is actual just freedom entirely, free to be me, free to be myself, freedom of self-expression, all of these things. And clearly that's not what we're talking about here, but here's the thing. Jesus both says, come and take on my yoke, and whoever has the son shall be free, and free indeed. And we think it's got to be one or the other, but they're really coinciding because the slavery that Jesus calls us into is a slavery without chains. It's an obedience to a right and proper master. The recognition in the war here by transitioning and taking prisoners is you're, you're on one side or the other. You're serving one general or the other. And we are so capable of deceiving ourselves and going, since I'm no longer serving this general, and all we've done is just move to a different you know, branch of the military on the same side. I need to deal with one thing really quickly, and then I want to turn to the words of Jesus to finish. He says here in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We've already seen that he's willing to deal with it when it needs to be dealt with. But notice the way it's phrased here. I don't want to do that until your obedience is complete. Here's the last thing that I think is really striking about the way Paul talks about power here. He basically says, I want you on my side. That's not because he needs the majority. It's because he wants to empower them. Do you understand that? He wants them to do the right thing. One of the things that he does here that I think is really interesting is like, imagine we discovered some form of new parasite. And if it was attached to you, if it was functioning in your body and you killed it, it would kill the host. Paul's got wisdom here. He understands what's at risk. If he just slams these leaders and sends them packing, some people he cares about who have been deceived will follow. He wants to separate their influence first and then deal with the problem. But once again, notice here, not only does he expect their obedience, not like you better obey me, but he expects this is really what's going to happen. He believes in this word of God to tear down strongholds, to deal with the deceptions, to show the dis, 
disparity between these leaders and who Jesus is, the Jesus they say they represent. But he also wants to give them life. And I think that's the biggest thing in power. Power rightly wielded by Christians empowers. It's not about me being at the top of the pile, but lifting everybody up on my shoulders. That's what Paul's ministry was. That's why he says back uh, where we were reading in chapter 4, we rejoice in our weakness because through our weakness you are strong. Listen to two places where Paul talks about this type of empowerment. What is his role with the church? First, in chapter 1, Sorry, I should have written this one down. Yeah, verse 24 at the very end there. Uh, In fact, 23 for context. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. He says, what's the purpose of my authority? What's the purpose of my power? for the sake of your joy, so that we can stand with you. And then notice how he closes the letter all the way in chapter 13. He says this in verse 9, We are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things that while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me. Why was the authority given? For building up and not tearing down. Christian power is only Christian power when it's used for the elevating of others, for the edification of others. When it's used for self-exaltation, when it's used for our own privileges, there's nothing Christ-like about it. Jesus had authority. As, As Nick mentioned here, he was our last Adam. He stood as a federal head and obeyed where we could not so that we could have the benefits of that obedience in the same way that that uh, Adam disobeyed and we have the consequences of that disobedience. But remember that Jesus wasn't in the same mess we were. He's not on the inside going, oh, we, we all stand condemned and then he comes up as a leader to figure out something. No, he comes from the outside, externally as a savior, reaching down, stepping in, kneeling down, condescending, entering into a problem that was not his own and bearing the full weight of that problem. That is the God-given reason for power. And it shouldn't surprise us because God is the creator and everything he does is oriented towards life. When Christian power is rightly wielded, it leads to life life for others. Here's where I wanted to finish. Jesus says this. He says, come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reason the yoke is easy there is because Jesus bears it alongside us. It's because he takes the brunt of the weight and invites us into it. Because he takes all that the cross means on his own shoulders and then says, now come be with me. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to confess that all power and authority and glory is yours. And we want to recognize that in our personal lives, in our own struggle with sin, in exhorting and encouraging one another and supporting one another in the church, and even as we carry a message of salvation to the world, we're in need 
of power. I ask that you'd help us to turn away from from all of these man-made weapons that may downplay, may hide, may even constrain the strongholds but won't destroy them. I pray, Lord, that you teach us how to wield your weapons. Just a simple explanation, articulation, speaking of the truth, bringing every thought into obedience to Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for all the places where we think that's not sufficient, where we also need money or influence or some sort of technique or tool. I pray finally for us that where we do have power, Lord, we would not use it for self-interest, but following in your example, knowing what it's like to need help, knowing what it's like to be a victim, knowing what it's like to get better than we deserve, that we would use our power to bring life to those around us and not just to nourish them and make ourselves, make them dependent upon us to massage our own self-image, but actually to enable them an integrated power that leads to, th- leads to them being empowered. I pray, Lord, that you give us the heart like Paul that says, if we're weak and that leads to your strength, then we rejoice. Help us to learn these lessons in Jesus' name. Amen.